Chapter 26 of What the White Race May Learn from the Indian by George Wharton James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 26 The Indian and Immortality. To the materialist, immortality is a foolish dream, to the agnostic, an unjustified human craving, to the simple Christian, a belief and to the transcendentalist a confident hope. But to the Indian it is as positive an assurance as is life. The white race has complicated its belief in the future life with many theological dogmas. The Roman Catholic Church has its purgatory, as well as its paradise and hell. The first, as a place of purging for the sins committed in the body, and that must be burned away, the second, the abode of the blessed, and the third, the place into which the damned are cast. The Seventh-day Adventists believe that only those who are saved by the blood of Christ and obedience to his commands are blessed with the gift of immortal life. They contend it is a free gift as an act of God's grace, and is not inherent in the soul or spirit of mankind. Those who refuse to accept salvation by the vicarious atonement of Christ, they believe, will be annihilated. The Presbyterian believes that a certain number of mankind are foreordained for salvation and heaven, and another number for damnation and hell from the foundation of the world. The Universalist believes that all men will ultimately be saved and therefore enjoy heaven, whilst others have a belief in a conditional immortality. The Indian believes in immortality without any admixture of complex theological ideas. His is a simple faith which he accepts as he accepts life. He believes that when he dies, his spirit goes to its new life, just as at birth he came into this life. And he believes that all the objects he used on earth, food, clothing, articles of adornment, baskets, horses, saddles, blankets, have a spirit life as well as he has. Hence, when one dies, his friends throw upon his funeral pyre his clothing, blankets, and other personal belongings, utensils for his comfort, food for his nourishment on the way to the underworld, or land of the future, and strangle his horse that its spirit may aid him on his journey. When death approaches, he faces it with calmness, equanimity, and serenity. Fearless and unafraid, he awaits the coming of the last great enemy. In effect, he cries out with Browning, I would hate that death bandaged my eyes, and forbore and bade me creep past. No, let me taste the whole of it. Fair like my peers, the heroes of old. No shirking for him. As calmly as Socrates took the bowl of fatal hemlock, the Indian awaits death and proudly passes on to the new life. Those who are left behind may wail for their loss, but the one who departs asks for and receives no sympathy. Now, it is this simple acceptation of death as a natural thing 
that I would have the white race learn. And yet it can never come to us as an act of simple faith as it is with the Indian. Our civilization has spoiled us for simple faith. That is practically impossible, save to a few souls who, unlike the rest of us, have kept themselves unspotted from the world of speculative thought or theological dogma. It can come, and does with many, as the result of religious training, or as it did to Browning and Whitman. What wonderfully different minds these two men had! One an aristocrat, the other a democrat, yet both full of love for mankind, and each teaching with vigor and power the fatherhood of God, the real brotherhood of man, and the immortality of the soul. Read Browning's Prospice, part of which I have already quoted, Evelyn Hope, Abt Vogler, and these three stanzas with which he opens his Lesages and elsewhere calls a Pisgah sight. Good to forgive, best to forget. Living we fret, dying we live, fretless and free. Soul, clap thy pinion, earth have dominion, body over thee. Wander at will day after day, wander away, wandering still, soul that can soar. Body may slumber, body shall cumber soul flight no more. Waft of soul's wing, what lies above? Sunshine and love, sky blue and spring. Body hides where? Ferns of all feather, mosses and heather, yours be the care. Compare these utterances with Whitman's rugged and forceful words. Passive and faltering, the words, the dead, I write, for living are the dead. Haply the only living, only real, and I, the apparition, the specter. Again in his, to one shortly to die, what a triumphant note is in the last two lines. I exclude others from you. There is nothing to be commiserated. I do not commiserate. I congratulate you. How perfectly Indian, this attitude, this refusal to be sorry, and to offer congratulations rather than regrets. In his Night on the Prairies, his perfect assurance as to the future is clearly expressed and while measuring himself with the great thoughts of space and eternity that fill him as he gazes upon the myriads of globes above, he exclaims, Now I absorb immortality and peace. I admire death. Oh, I see now that life cannot exhibit all to me, as the day cannot. I see that I am to wait for what will be exhibited by death. In one poem he speaks of awaiting death with perfect equanimity, and in another he says, The holiest minister of heaven, the envoy, usherer, guide, and last of all, rich florid loosener of the stricture not called life, sweet, peaceful, welcome death. And the reason for all this restfulness as to death and the future is expressed in his assurances. 
I do not doubt that the passionately wept deaths of young men are provided for, and that the deaths of young women and the deaths of little children are provided for. Did you think life was so well provided for, and death, the purport of all life, is not well provided for? I do not doubt that wrecks at sea, no matter what the horrors of them, no matter whose wife, child, husband, father, lover has gone down, are provided for to the minutest points. I do not doubt that whatever can possibly happen anywhere, at any time, is provided for in the inherences of things. I do not think life provides for all and for time and space, but I believe heavenly death provides for all. So, reader, I care not how it comes into your soul, so that you have it there, a rich and precious possession, this living, active, potential belief in immortality. If you know you are now, and that you will never end, you will find that life itself becomes more enlarged and dignified. You will not be content with mere earthly aims. You will not rest satisfied to be a mere money-getter, but, realizing the immensity of your own capacities and powers, you will reach out for the eternal things, the realities that abide forever. For Joaquin Miller never wrote a truer word than when he said, For all you can hold in your dead cold hand is what you have given away. This forever settles a thoughtful man's conception of mere acquisitiveness. Such gatherings together are unworthy the soul that feels and knows its own mortality. It needs a larger aim, a more worthy object. Another thing in connection with what we call death, the white race may well learn from the Indian. How often does press and pulpit expend itself in finding superlatives to pour out in lavish eulogy over the dead, who, while alive, never did a thing to win the love of their fellows. Such eulogy is unknown among the Indians. The preacher of an Indian funeral sermon would do more dare wrongfully praise or laud his subject than he would falsely execrate him. He must speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and while he is not called upon to expatiate upon the wrongdoings, the foibles or weaknesses of his subject, he must say no word of praise that is not justly earned and strictly true. If this law were applied to the white race, what different funeral sermons and orations we should hear and read? and what different inscriptions we should read upon the tombstones found in our graveyards. End of chapter 26